Please take your Bibles and join me in Psalm 133. Psalm 133. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seat backs in front of you, you can find our text on page 519. We're in Psalm 133. The title of our sermon is Biblical Catholicity. If you weren't sure how to pronounce that word, there it is. Biblical Catholicity. Well, as you are aware and know, we have been for many weeks now, or several weeks rather, uh, working on the values, the core values of Redeemer Baptist Church. So far, we've considered five of seven values that the elders believe we need to embrace in our pursuit of the mission of this church, to worship God with joy, to love our neighbors, to see transformed lives, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. In order to pursue that mission, we've sort of broadened it out a bit, and we've said that we need to embrace a fresh commitment to offer God acceptable worship. We need to love our neighbors as prescribed in God's law. We need to engage in spiritual warfare to be grateful for all of God's provisions for us, and we need to share our good things with those who are in need. Today, then, we look at a sixth value, biblical Catholicity. Now, up front, I'll make clear, I don't mean by Catholicity, in case you're starting to sweat, that we are Roman Catholic. We are a Protestant church. We hold to the five solas of the Reformation with a firm hand. Scripture alone is authoritative, necessary, and sufficient to reveal the saving work of God in the world, whereby He saves undeserving sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it is, of course, all to the glory of God alone. But the word Catholic, especially if you don't capitalize the C, simply describes that which is universal. So, in a sense, Roman Catholic is a bit of an oxymoron. Those two words don't really belong together as descriptors of God's church. One word, Roman, emphasizes a particular geographical location. The other word, Catholic, emphasizes the universal or worldwide nature of the church. So, when we say we are Catholic or we want to pursue Catholicity, we're saying this in the sense that we are unified with God's people, with God's one true church made up of all Christians from all times and in all places. And so you have God's church, big C, um, in all the world. And yet, in this world, in this fallen world, denominational distinctions are pretty much inevitable. And there is a sadness that we ought to feel when we consider just how divided churches have been and even are still today. But distinct denominational traditions are not only negative. There is, there is something of a negative there, I suppose. But it's not only negative. And so while we long for the day when all of God's people attain to the unity of the faith, we press on consciously and happily as a Protestant 
church of the Reformed and Baptistic persuasion, believing at the same time that there are not only legitimate and even good churches out there in the world besides us, but they also exist in this country, state, and even this county. Now, I'm not talking about a lowest common denominator type of Christianity, where the only thing that we're allowed to talk about is a very strict and narrow, even if accurate, definition of the gospel. What we are talking about in the pursuit of biblical Catholicity is cultivating a robust biblical grasp of the Scriptures that rejoices in the wisdom and insight that we can learn from others without compromising our Reformed understanding of the Scriptures. And so here then comes Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is one of the psalms of ascent. They were the songs that Israel would sing on their pilgrimages to the temple throughout each year. Psalm 133 holds forth for us the blessing of Christian unity, which is the necessary foundation for the church's Catholicity. So let me read this psalm. We read it in our call to worship, but I'll read it again and then outline our sermon, and we will get to work. David writes, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. There are three things that I want you to see with me from this text about the blessing of Christian unity. First in verse 1, we see the declaration of its blessing. Second in verses 2, in the very first part of verse 3, we see a vivid description of its blessing. Third, at the end of verse 3, we see the source of its blessing. So the declaration of the blessing, a vivid description of the blessing, and then the source of the blessing. First thing, then, the declaration of blessing in verse 1. The writer, David, says that it is good and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. There are a couple things worth noting here regarding this statement. First, what do we mean by unity? Second, what do we mean by good and pleasant? Unity does not mean what you might call uniformity. Uniformity would mean something like everyone and everything is exactly the same. The unity of God's people is not to be equated with the idea that every single Christian is thinking, saying, and doing the exact same things. There are going to be differences among us. There are going to be differences of opinion among us. There are going to be issues of liberty that lead people to make different decisions than you would make if you can believe it. There will be different interests, different skill sets, different pursuits among us. There will even be differences of belief concerning a vast array of doctrinal issues, even rather important doctrinal issues. And real, genuine Christians can live together amidst such 
differences. And so we're not talking about uniformity here, but we are talking about unity. What the psalmist envisions here is a peaceful togetherness. And he says, it is good and pleasant. It's good primarily because of the way it glorifies God. When God's people are at odds with one another, living in conflict with each other, this does, repu- this does harm to his reputation in the world. Sinners look on at a conflicted and conflicting church and conclude, some God they serve. And so when we are unified with one another, God's work in redemption is set on display. But unity among God's people is also pleasant. Think about it. Which do you prefer? To be in open conflict with a brother? To to live in hostility with your neighbor? Or to be at peace with him? Unity among God's people is enjoyable. Don't you think so? I suppose there are some people that just seem to live for fighting. Proverbs 20, verse 3 says, It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. So I suppose it's worth asking ourselves at this moment, do I find unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ to be pleasant? Another way to put it, am I a quarrelsome person? I'm glad you asked. Kevin DeYoung uh, named several characteristics of the quarrelsome person uh, in an article that he wrote. And I, I want to set some of these characteristics before you uh, as a series of questions. Do you defend every conviction that you have with the same degree of, of intensity as every other degree, as every other conviction? Right? Does every conviction I have, do I defend it? with the same degree of intensity? Are you incapable of seeing nuance? Do you refuse to qualify a statement? Or maybe better yet, do you refuse to let other people qualify statements that they make? Do you refuse to give the benefit of the doubt? Do you assume that the person you're talking to is always lying? Or do you believe them when they speak? Here's a good one. Do you have any unarticulated opinions? Does everyone that you know know everything you think about everything? Is it your first instinct to criticize? Is it your last instinct to encourage? Do you view the world through a tiny grid through which everything needs to neatly fit? Everything always comes back to issue X, whatever it may be. It's all about this thing. Do you derive a sense of satisfaction in feeling constantly rejected and persecuted? Are you always in conflict with someone about something for some reason? Have you never changed your mind about something? If a vast 
array of those questions describe you in some way, then perhaps you are indeed a quarrelsome person. And if that's you, I would urge you to repent and smell the roses. Dwelling in unity with God's people is a good and pleasant thing. We need not always be at war with someone, especially not a brother. The one giving, the one given rather to quarreling, the Proverbs say, is like one who grabs a, a passing dog by the ears. It's a dangerous thing. You're, we're going to get ourselves hurt, seriously injured. And so let us put to death every quarrelsome urge that we have, and let us pursue peace together. Of course, there are reasons and Boundary, there are reasons to draw boundary lines. Boundary lines and markers exist. But let us draw them where the Scripture does and not where we would like. Peace glorifies God and it blesses those who have it. In case you're not convinced yet, consider with me this vivid description that we see in verses 2 and 3 of the blessing of, of unity. He gives a vivid description here, and he gives us two pictures in this description. There's a picture of oil, oil on the head, running down the beard onto the robes, and there's a picture of dew falling from heaven. In the Old Testament, oil represented prosperity, blessing, and stability in a general sense, but it also stood as a picture of the one being anointed with oil being anointed by God's Spirit for God's work. We see this in the, uh, the anointing of priests and kings. They were anointed as a sign of consecration unto the Lord's calling. In Exodus 30, 22, Mo, uh, God commands Moses to make a holy oil, um, a holy anointing oil from the finest spices, from liquid myrrh, sweet-smelling cinnamon, aromatic cane, cassia, and olive oil. He was to blend these spices together. He was to anoint the, tabern- uh, anoint the tabernacle, the ark, uh, the table, its, utensil- its utensils, the lampstand, the altar, the wash basin, as well as Aaron and his sons, the high priest and priest. The Lord says it is... Um, to be a holy anointing oil throughout the generations of Israel. And it was not to be poured on the body of any ordinary person. We see oil explicitly tied to the Spirit in a case like David's in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. We see it also in Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Jesus importantly applies this passage to Himself in Luke 4 as the Messiah, God's anointed one. So this image in Psalm 133 of a generous pouring of oil upon the head of Aaron the high priest, the running down from the head onto the beard, onto the robe. Even as you read it in verse 2, you you get the sense of this cascading effect as as the oil is liberally poured upon its recipient. And it's, it's a picture of the lavish presence of God and His Spirit 
upon the kingdom of priests as they dwell together in the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. And he shifts the metaphor in verse 3. The unity of God's people is pictured not just as this pouring of oil, but as the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. The mountains of Zion is a phrase describing less of a geographical place and more of a theological concept. It refers to Israel, that is, to the people of God. God's people, Israel. Hermon, however, has a theological significance that is really seen quite clearly when we do consider some of its geographical features. Hermon was located in the far north of Israel. It's one of the highest points in the region. Its snow-capped top was the majority source of the Jordan River. The snow would melt. The water from Hermon would flow down to water the whole land of Israel. And so Hermon and its dew, along with Aaron and his oil, symbolize the blessings of holiness and vitality for God's unified people. Holiness in that Aaron was the priest working for the sanctification of Israel in the presence of God. Hermon providing life-giving water to the region. And so in unity, we are blessed with holiness and life in God's presence. Well, this brings us, of course, to a, a third thing to consider from the end of verse 3. The source of this blessing. The answer must be obvious. What is the source? It is the Lord. For the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. The Lord blesses His people with peace and unity. Peace and unity. This blessedness draws us back to the Lord. Our thoughts and our affections don't terminate on one another, but they are moved up the chain back to God Himself. Because our unity with one another is but a part of our unity with God. John writes in 1 John 4.20, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this command we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. God is the source of this blessing. And so what that means, if God is the source of our unity, that means we can be unified, as we were saying earlier, even when we disagree. Even when we sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about this in his little book, Life Together. He warns against Christians bringing with them a very definite assumption in their minds about what Christian community ought to be. And then they come into this community desperately trying to realize their own conception of it. He says, whoever loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God accordingly. 
He goes on to say, because God has already laid the foundation of our fellowship, because God has already um, bound us together in one body and, and with other Christians in Jesus Christ, long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. One more quote from Bonhoeffer to this point. It's a remarkable reminder. He says, even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of Jesus Christ? He says, the, thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably salutary because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. When the morning mist of dreams vanish, Then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. And so this blessing upon the unity of God's people that comes to us from God, it draws our gaze back to God. Because apart from Him, it's impossible. By nature, we are children of wrath. We are quarrelsome. We are argumentative. We are selfish and self-centered and self-focused. We can't possibly have this, the type of unity described in this psalm apart from God Himself. Who gives it, commands a blessing upon it. Life forevermore. We are united to one another in that we are united to Christ. It is in the Lord that we are unified with one another in our pursuit of unity. This pursuit of unity therefore magnifies the gospel of grace. Whereby, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, the one Lord, faith, baptism, and God over all, God is glorified in the world as His people are joined and knit together by His Spirit and equipped to build up the body of Christ in love. He says that in Ephesians 4. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 3.10. He says the church, namely the, the unity of the one people of God, Jews and Gentiles there, he says this is God's plan to exhibit the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it isn't just sinners in the world who look on the church with an interest to our unity. It is the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God declares His manifold wisdom to every creature and being that exists in our unity with one another. And so what do we do in the pursuit of this unity? I'd like to offer a few points of, of application here regarding how we may embrace such unity, how we may pursue such biblical Catholicity among God's people. 
And these, these ca- there are two categories that I'm thinking of here. First, how do we do it as individuals? How do we do it uh, as uh, individuals and families here at Redeemer Baptist Church? But then, how do we, as one united family of faith, pursue unity with other families of faith, other Christians and other churches? So how do we pursue unity here among ourselves? The first thing is what you might call theological unity. We pursue theological unity in, in that we, we have identified the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith as the best summary of Christian doctrine, and we expect church officers to subscribe to it. And yet, we do not require all church members to subscribe to it in any formal sense. So while it should be recognized that it is the, the standard right, teach, uh, of teaching here at the church, to be a member of this church, we've simply given three doctrinal statements in our church covenant that all members must affirm. I believe, here's the first one, I believe the Bible, consisting of the Old and New Testaments, to be the Word of God, infallible and inerrant, and its doctrine of salvation to be the perfect and only true doctrine of salvation. Second, I believe I am a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His wrath, and without hope, except in God's sovereign love and mercy to save me. And three, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the only Savior of sinners, and receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He has offered to me in the Gospel. Of course, there's things to be worked out in those statements. But our point in limiting these three doctrinal commitments to our doctrinal commitments for church members to those three things specifically is because we want the membership of Redeemer Baptist Church to be as broad as Christ's kingdom is, as much as possible. Though we see the wisdom and the necessity of having more narrowly defined leadership, both in terms of doctrine and character. Now, when we talk about church membership, we're not just saying all you have to say or do or think is to agree to those three statements. There's more concerning our lives in our covenant together. We commit to protect the unity of our church. We commit to serve the church We commit to seek help if we are struggling to fulfill these promises to one another. But we pursue a biblical Catholicity by seeking to welcome into our membership all Christians. A good example um, of how we've sought to apply this principle, maybe in a way that other churches haven't always done, is to welcome both Credo-Baptist and Pado-Baptist into membership. There weren't any gasps, and so I assume that means you knew that. You know, as I said, this isn't something that every church does, and that's understandable. Baptism is an issue that we tend to have very strong, not just opinions, but feelings about as well. And so perhaps working that out in the life of a church can be challenges, but they're challenges worth having. Now, 
we, we are a Baptist church, and so we won't baptize an infant, but we are happy to welcome someone into membership with pedo-baptist convictions. Within the evangelical tradition, at least, we don't require someone to be re uh, we wouldn't quite put it, per se rebaptized, I guess, but to be baptized upon a profession of faith to join. That was Baptist, right? We, we might say that pedo Baptist practice would be irregular, but it isn't invalid. And that's an important distinction to make. If someone was baptized as an infant or as an adult in a tradition of faith that doesn't preach the gospel in any true sense, then there's no baptism there. But there are many other denominations besides Baptist or even Reformed Baptist that preach Christ. And so whatever word we might use, irregular, maybe the the mode or the timing of the baptism, but it isn't invalid. And we are not prepared to write off altogether Someone who is a genuine believer in Christ. If you were in Sunday school this morning in the Romans class, it was good fun thinking about our unity together as Dr. Godfrey in the video was talking about baptism. It's a wonderful thing that we can come together and worship Christ together. So we have a theological unity, and that's just one example. You can apply it to, to many other areas of, of doctrine in terms of who we can get along with as members here. But we also have, in our pursuit of biblical Catholicity, what you might call something like a social unity. And by this, all I mean is that we don't show partiality. Right? You're welcomed and encouraged to have friends. Even friends who are similar to you in almost every way. Similar age, season of life, similar economic status, that's fine. I don't, we don't expect you to find the person most different from you and be their best friend. But we need to be careful that we don't exclude other people from our prayers and our ministry simply because they have less or more money than we do. Or because they have a, they're at a different age, at a different season of life. Right? There are many families here at our church are, I guess what you would say, neither particularly old nor particularly young. There's usually a, a truck full or bus full of kids coming behind them. But that's not all. There are people... Throughout the spectrum, and increasingly so, our our hair gets grayer by the day. My children note the sides of my hair often. We We appreciate in this diversity that we all have different strengths and weaknesses. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 12, that we're one body but many parts with different strengths and we do different things. We have strengths and we have weaknesses. There are pros and cons to having lots of money. There are pros and cons to having less money. There are strengths that men have that women don't. There are strengths that 
women have that men don't. And there are weaknesses that each one has that the other doesn't. I love Proverbs twenty twenty nine. It says, The glory of young men is their strength, and the glory of the old is their gray hair. As a symbol of wisdom. We're getting wiser every week. And that's a great thing. So those are some examples. We have a theological unity together. We have a social unity. I want to think about our church covenant for a minute here and what we've actually stated regarding this pursuit of unity together. This is what we've said. We've said the members of Redeemer Baptist Church promise to protect the unity of this church by um, each one seeking the welfare and edification of the others above his or her own. We promise to protect the unity of this church by each one um, following the elders in heart and action, submitting to their direction so long as it conforms to the teaching of Scripture. We protect the unity of the church by refusing to engage in or listen to gossip or cause dissension. We protect the unity of this church by not forming alliances in doctrinal disagreements with our confession of faith. We we protect the unity of the church by humbly relying on the Holy Spirit to put to death our sinful nature and live a godly life as a follower of Jesus Christ. We protect the unity of the church by lovingly and privately confronting those who sin against us in an effort to resolve the matter. So there's more that could be said, but that's a good place to begin for pursuing unity here. We have a theological, doctrinal unity. We have a social unity, and we've promised to protect unity with one another. Simply by ultimately considering other people as more significant than we consider ourselves. But how do we pursue unity with other churches? What does that look like? Well, we do this in at least three ways. We pursue a, biblical, a biblically Catholic spirit with other churches through prayer, partnership, and promotion. I want to consider each of those fairly briefly with you. First, we pray for other churches. This isn't news to you. We do this every Sunday during the pastoral prayer both churches in our community and churches in uh, Reformed Baptist Network. We pray for the churches occasionally during the Sunday morning prayer service. We do it throughout the year when we are made aware of other needs, of needs that these other churches have. And when we pray for them, we don't pray that God would make them just like us. We pray that He would bless them and make them fruitful and effective in their ministry where they are. We pursue unity not just by prayer, but by partnering with churches. We do this both formally and informally. Formally, we're a founding church of the Reformed Baptist Network. So we've entered into a formal partnership with other Reformed and Baptistic churches for the sake of fellowship and the Great Commission. And we work together with these churches to raise up missionaries, to send them out so that new churches might be planted and existing churches might be strengthened. But we also partner with other churches, somewhat informally, you might say, by hosting events together. 
each year at our, uh, our, the summer conference that we have in July every year, we, we invite other churches to join us down on St. Simon's Island. Many of them that we invite and come are from RBNet, but not all. Some are here. We've gotten uh, this year, right, uh, uh, our speaker is a pastor not connected with RBNet, not even a Baptist. Shout out to you guys. It's a great thing. Several years ago, we, we held a counseling conference together with Coastal Bible Fellowship. In our, our counseling ministry here, Becky's, every week, she's got some new connection that she's made with, with somebody as we're building relationships with other churches in our area. New Year's, last, uh, not this past one, the year before that, we held a joint uh, sort of get-together with Christ Life Bible Church. We've held services together with them. We've done evangelism together with them. And so we partner with churches, but we also pray, partner, and we promote other churches. I recently just shared, I think this past week, an invite to you all from One Savior Church for their annual marriage conference in the end of April. I personally am am working to grow in my relationship with other pastors in this area. We ought to rejoice when we hear about other solid churches that are growing in our area, or even churches that we might look at and and think, well, they're not as theological as we are, or, or whatever, but they, if they're growing and growing in maturity and wisdom, we can rejoice in that. We don't have to count it as an L if someone visits our church and decides to join another. I'm not suggesting that you drive people away to these other churches. But we don't want to be territorial. Effingham County is mine. It's Christ. It's not mine. It's not ours. So let us not think that we are the only true or even good church in the Southeast. We might say we're the best. Because of all of you out there, but we're not the only church worth attending or joining or praying for. I want to close with, I want to close this appeal for Catholicity with Jesus' high priestly prayer. I'm not going to read the whole thing or even most of it. John 17, I encourage you to go read it later. There, Jesus prays for his disciples. Specifically, he prays for those who are there, present with him. But he also prays for those who would come to believe through their word. Us. He he asked his Father for several things for us. Let me start by quoting from verse 21, or Quoting, referencing, he he prays that we would all be one, just as he and the Father are one. That we would be in them so that the world may believe that God sent Jesus. The unity of the church is a testament to the unity and the action of God himself. 
The unity of the Trinity is the foundation of the unity of God's people. The unity of the work of the Trinity is declared by the unity of God's people. When Christians bite and devour one another, we besmear the name of Christ and the work of God in the world. Now look, unbelievers are going to unbelieve, right? And they're looking for an excuse. And we need to be careful not to give them one. Shame on us if others look at us and could in any way deduce that there is any sense of disunity in God because of our lives together. Shame on us if people could look at us and find some justification for rejecting God. So, Redeemer Baptist Church, would you join me in a fresh commitment to pursue a biblical Catholicity where we stand together as a unified people, both with each other and with Christians all over the world? I pray that you would.